Is there a desire in you to not just attend revival, but live in revival? Welcome to the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Saldivar. I've been in revival for the last 10 years, as well as traveling and being a part of many revivals throughout the United States. I'm going to be sharing with you how to live a radical lifestyle of revival on a daily basis of revival and i want to just say this right now that many of you watching this you think you clicked on this video by accident you think you did it just because you were scrolling or something but god has put you in this broadcast for a divine appointment that god wants to fill you with this spirit i believe tonight those that have not been filled with the holy spirit at the end of the broadcast we are going to pray and they're going to be filled with the holy spirit and i'm going to show you in scripture how you can get filled with the Holy Spirit while the preaching's going on. So expect that tonight as we're preaching the Bible, that you get filled with the Holy Spirit. And I would encourage you to have a Bible with you. We're going through the New King James Version. We're going through the book of Acts. We are on part six. You can find part one through five on my channel. Last teaching, we went over chapter eight, where Philip, who's the only named evangelist in scripture, is preaching, casting out demons, and healing the sick. Here you have Philip the evangelist, casting out demons, preaching the gospel and healing the sick in the book of Acts, showing us that it's not supposed to be rare, but it's supposed to be commonplace for the believer to walk in the supernatural. If I'm calling myself an evangelist, an evangelist is not someone comes to a church, preaches and says, who wants to invite Jesus into their heart? Like a lot of you got taught growing up. And then you fill out a card and say, I'm inviting Jesus. An evangelist walks in the power of God, walks in the authority. Jesus said, all authority, all power has been given to me. I'm giving it to you. What I was to the world, you now be to the world because I am going to the Father. Go there for and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all the things everything I've commanded of you. So if I commanded you to go preach, teach them to go preach. If I commanded you to cast out demons, teach them to go cast out demons. If I commanded you to heal the sick, teach them to go heal the sick. If I taught you all these things about the Christian life, go teach others, disciple them. And so here Philip is showing us what is biblical evangelism. And that is casting out demons, preaching the gospel, healing the sick. Now it's not detached from what Jesus did because remember what Jesus did. What was the three main things Jesus did? This is not arguable, guys. This is in the Gospels. He preached the Gospels. He preached the Gospel. He cast out demons. And he healed those that were sick all throughout the Gospels. Every city he's going to, this is Jesus doing these things. And so don't miss this, guys. These are very simple things to do. And these are the calling of the evangelist who's Philip. Now you might say, well... That's not for me, brother. That's for Philip the evangelist. Well, the Bible says to all of us to do the work of the evangelist. So what is the work of the evangelist? Preaching, casting out demons, telling the sick, according to Acts chapter 8, who's Philip, the only named evangelist, the model we see in scripture. And then the Bible says that we all are called to do the work of an evangelist. That is sharing our faith, casting out demons and healing the sick simply because we all know somebody that is sick in body. We all know somebody that needs a devil cast out of them. We all know somebody that needs us to deliver, set them free and let the power of God. And if we are Christians, this is the essence of it. By the way, tomorrow night we are talking about should every Christian cast out demons? We're refuting Ellen Parr's recent video. So just don't miss that tomorrow. But my whole thing is guys, if we're Christians, if we're believers, what we're going to see in the book of Acts is the Christians did what Christ did. We're little Christ. So what did Jesus do? I don't have to 
pray about it. I don't have to get a Bible college degree. I don't have to study five years in seminary to understand this, which if you don't know, I do have a a bachelor's degree, a four-year degree in theology, but I didn't need to go through four years of theology like I did to understand that if Christ did it, I'm also called to do it. So you're going to see this in the book of Acts as a central theme is the supernatural power of God. We're going to talk about it tonight, raising the dead. We're going to see that tonight. And we're also going to see healing the sick tonight and very other things. Last time we talked about this, we talked about casting out demons. So these are three activities that we should target as believers. Let's break 2000, share this broadcast. Remember what Romans 15, 19 says. There, they were convinced by the mirac- power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's spirit. In this way, this is Paul speaking, I have fully presented the good news of Christ from Jerusalem to Lyricum. So he said this, I'm convincing. They're, they are con- being convinced by the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's spirit. And this is how I, I know that I'm preaching and fully presenting the good news. So the good news, not just... Jesus died, which he did three days later, was raised from the dead and is seated now at the right hand of God and offers you eternal life by grace. It's not by works, unless any man should boast, but invites you into a life of eternal life where you deny yourself. You uh, Acts 2.38, you repent of your sins, you turn to God and you receive the Holy Spirit and you get baptized. That's not only the good news. The good news is also, according to Paul, Romans 15.19, is the miraculous signs and wonders by the power of God's spirit. So these, this is part of the good news. Oh, guys, I have good news for you. Now, it's not just you can get saved, but what about my sickness now? Like, I'm sick in my body right now, and you're telling me I have to wait till I die to be fine and to be well and to be with God? And you're telling me that the demons that I have from all my life in the world and all these open doors and everything I was involved with, all the darkness, you're telling me that I have to live with those same demons, and now I just I hear the good news and I accept Christ and everything's going to be fine? It's not just the good news. The good news, according to Romans 15, 19, is the miraculous signs and wonders. And Paul said, and because of that, I know that I fully presented the gospel. So according to the apostle Paul, is the gospel full without miracle signs and wonders? Absolutely not. It's not a full presentation. It's the good news, but it's not the full presentation of the good news. I want the whole thing, y'all. I want the full package of all that God has for me. I want to actually do it. Why am I going to, as a preacher of the gospel, preach the good news, but not demonstrate the good news? And really, let me just say this. Shame on me. If I'm going to get up here and preach about deliverance and that God can deliver people and it's in the gospels, it's in the book of Acts, because if I'm teaching genuinely through the gospels or the book of Acts, which eventually we will preach and teach through all the gospels, then I can honestly preach that and not actually walk that out. How am I going to preach Jesus cast out demons and not walk out a lifestyle of deliverance? How am I going to live with my family and friends sick all around me and read the Bible and literally read where it says, if you believe you can lay hands on the sick and literally read where the disciples did it. Jesus said, you have the same spirit, the same power and not actually do it. I'm convicted by this guys. I don't want to be a hypocrite. Now a hypocrite is not just me saying, well, you know, I live for God. I'm holy. And then in the dark, uh, in the background, I'm living in sin or I'm living a different life. A hypocrite is also, and this is for all of us, including me is also preaching something, but not living what we're preaching. So we preach, oh, God can heal and God can deliver, but we never lay our hand out on a sick person. We never drive out a demon. So I'm not, I'm not playing that guys. I'm not playing in the kiddie pool. And some of you, God is actually calling you out of the kiddie pool. He's saying, put down the floaties, put down the door of the explorer of floaties and get in the deeper things of God and go deeper and walk this thing out. It's the best thing that will ever happen to you. So to say, God doesn't want you to heal the sick. 
God doesn't want you to cast out devils. God doesn't want you to preach the gospel is an anti-gospel message because that's not the message of the good news. And Paul makes that very clear. Now, that was chapter eight, talking about Philip, Simon the sorcerer, talking about the eunuch that Philip reached. Chapter nine, we're going to start in Acts chapter nine, verses one and two. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked them for, for letters from the synagogue of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So what Saul is doing is Saul is terrorizing the church, absolutely terrorizing the church in the name of God, in the name of righteousness, in the name of I'm right, they're wrong, and we got to, you know, keep orthodoxy in the church, in, in, in uh, religion, and we don't want to mess with the Sanhedrin, we don't want to mess with the law, this man that claims to be Jesus. So Saul is going out, breathing threats and murder against the disciples. His, his life goal is to destroy the church. His life goal in the name of God. Now, okay, I won't even go there, because some of y'all know there's a lot of people coming in the name of God that are destroying the move of God, but Paul in the, Saul, in the name of God, is trying to kill the disciples and he's asking for letters um, so that he can bring people bound to Jerusalem. He's on campaign terror and he's seeking approval from the high priest to approve of his terror campaign against Christians. And this is his goal. Here's his campaign slogan, wipe out all the Christians. We want to kill, we want to destroy. This is happening in other nations. Again, some of you watching are in persecuted nations and Saul's life campaign goal, his slogan is, I'm Paul, I'm sorry, I'm Saul, vote for me. My campaign is destroy Christianity. Now in the Roman Empire, the the people were governed by the laws of their own nation. So various different people groups are governed by the laws of their nations. And according to Jewish law, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem had authority over the 6 million Jews scattered throughout the Roman world. So although they might be in a Roman Empire, Roman government, they were still under the laws of the Sanhedrin and the Jewish law. And this was something that the Romans will let them do is they let them govern their own laws. So there was an extradition of escapees back to Jerusalem for punishment. They it required to extradite these believers to be executed and punished. They needed a letter of authorization from the high priest. And so the letters that Saul is carrying, and I'm trying to keep it simple, guys. I don't want to go so deep you fall asleep or you need scuba gear. The letters that Paul is carrying were honored by both the secular government and the synagogue officials in Damascus. So what we know about this character named Saul so far is he's a young man, according to Acts 7.58, meaning he was between 24 and 40 years of age. So he's somewhere probably around my age. I'm 30. He's between 24 and 40 years of age. He's a Jew born a Roman citizen in Tarsus. That's Acts 21, 39, 22, 3, uh, 25 through 29. He's fluent in Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew. That's Acts 21, 37, verses 40, Acts 22, verses 2. He was raised in Jerusalem. That's Acts 22, 3. He's a disciple of a well-respected Pharisee, Gamil. And we talked about him before. That's in Acts 22, 3. He's an expert in Jewish law. That's Acts 22, 3, uh, 22 verse 3. And he's motivated in persecuting Christians by zeal for God. And we see that in Acts 22, 3, chapter 22, verse 3 as well. So here he is. He has all the knowledge. He has all the verbiage, like a lot of religious people today. He knows all the wording. Guys, there are times, I'm, I'm being honest with you right now, where I avoid deep wording or intellectual wording or intellectual ideas because I don't want to try to come off as this guy who's has all this head knowledge. And Paul said, I didn't come with clever speech, although Paul could have because he's extremely educated. Paul said, I came in the power and the demonstration so that your faith would not be in me, it would be in God. I don't want ever to be so intellectual or so smart or so educated theologically and start using all this theological lingo 
so that you could put your faith in me thinking Isaiah is this great Bible teacher, this great scholar. But instead, Paul says, I've come to you with the power and demonstration of God so that when you see the power and demonstration, your faith is not in man. Your faith is not in Isaiah. It's not in Paul, but it is in God himself. Now, the rest of Saul's story is the subject of basically the rest of the book of Acts. And some of this, I kind of like, okay, Lord, help me teach this because a lot of it is stories. It's descriptive. It's describing stories of the book of Acts. And so we're going to go through this, but I want you to understand that when Paul is persecuting the church, he believes that he's serving the God of Israel and that God is proud of him. Is it possible to persecute the move of God, the new thing God is doing and thinking God is proud of what you're doing? Absolutely. We see it all the time today. He's doing it under the pretense of zeal for God. Again, we have to be careful that we don't get so intellectually deep that we miss out on the power of God. This is what Jesus indicted the Pharisees of. He's like, you guys are all intellectually correct. You know all the laws. You have everything written down. You're great teachers of the law. He goes, but you don't live it out. You don't walk in demonstration. And because of all your traditions and all your intellect, the power of God is made void in your life and, in, and amongst your midst. And so Jesus comes and reveals himself to children, comes and reveals himself to these fishermen, these tax collectors, because they weren't claiming to become wise. Claiming to become wise, they became as fools, the Bible says. So Paul is doing this under pretense, pretense zeal for God. Uh, real Christians are being persecuted right now by religious people who think they're defending God's honor. And the problem is what they're saying goes against scripture, whether that's going against healing, whether that's going against holiness, whether that's going against baptism, whether that's going against passion for God, deliverance, casting out demons, whatever they're going against, they're doing it passionately, zeal for God. Guys, there's a massive majority of Christians that are reformed or don't believe the gifts are for today, don't believe the Holy Spirit's still functioning and moving the way he was in the Bible, don't believe that we have power to heal a sick cast of demons. There's a millions of Christians that have this idea and believe it, and they persecute anybody who believes that it is for today. And they'll say, whenever you get healed in your body or you get delivered, they'll say, well, your experience doesn't matter. This is what they're always going to say. And type one, if you know exactly what I'm talking about, your experience doesn't matter. That's all experience. We need Bible verses. We don't need experience. Well, first of all, when they wrote, when Paul, when Saul was, was uh, doing what he was doing and growing the church, he didn't have the new Testament. The new Testament wasn't written 30 to 50 years after Jesus raised from the dead. And the gospels was the experiences the disciples had with Jesus. Like if you read the gospels, you're reading the disciples experiences written by Matthew. This is what I saw written by Luke. I mean, written by John. This is written by all these different people that were experiencing when John the Baptist disciples came to Jesus said, Hey, John wants to know if you're the one or should we keep looking? Jesus didn't say, well, what's in the Torah? Jesus didn't say, well, what's in the law? Jesus said, tell him what you've experienced that the blind see the deaf hear Demons are cast out. The dead are raised. Tell him your experience. So the son of God uses experience to validate who is who he says he is. And John 10, he said, if you don't believe me, if you don't believe my preaching, this is what Jesus said. Believe the experiences. Believe the miracles. Believe the signs and wonders and know that I'm in the father and the father's in me. So these are experiences that they had. So we can't discredit people's experiences and say, Oh, well, I know you got healed of cancer, but God doesn't heal it today. That's just your experience. It doesn't line up with the Bible. No, you don't line up with the Bible because you don't live the Bible. So I don't, I don't know where we got. And let me just add to that as well. Christianity and religion is the only area I know of, of any type of group 
that things experiences don't matter. Like that's like say, going to a doctor and saying, well, it's not about experience. I'm going to do this surgery even though I have none. Uh, that's experience matters in every area of government. Ex resumes, there's a thing called a resume. What's your experience? Hey, you need eight years of experience. Well, you know what? I don't believe experience matters. I know all the books. I've studied the, the textbooks and they're going to say, wait, what? You need eight years of experience to get this job. I don't think experience matters. Friend, experience does matter. I know pastors aren't going to tell you that, but I'm here to tell you it mattered in the Bible and it still matters today. So we can't discredit what God is doing right now. And let me just give you some of you a reality check tonight. God is still moving regardless of what you think. You may not think God heals. You may not think God delivers, but let me tell you, your belief does not take the move of God in or out of existence. And God does not need your permission before he does whatever he wants to do. You think God's like, well, I got to ask Isaiah Saldivar if I could do this healing or do this deliverance or set this person free or use this person. Paul said, I'm not trying to please man. If I was trying to gain approval with, oh, with the Sanhedrin, all the religious people, I would never even be a bond servant of Christ. I'm not looking to gain some type of following with some religious person. And I, and I know a lot of you still care about what religious people think. I don't care about what religious people think because I don't want what they have. I don't want a form of godliness. But as Paul said, deny the power that can make them like God. Didn't the Bible say in the last days that we'll have a form of godliness, but deny the very power of God? How do you explain that away? How do you, well, the Greek, it says this. Well, the English translates to you deny the power of God. You don't live it. Don't walk it. Then I should stay away from you. According to the Bible, I'm not going to live my life under the, the yoke of this religious thing that preaches a gospel that we don't walk out. Acts 9. Chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly a light, this is Saul now walking. And suddenly a light shone around him from the heaven. Then he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Now I'm going to burst a lot of people's bubble right now, okay? My bubble was burst when I, when I studied this years and years ago and learned this. The Bible does not say that Paul was on a horse and Paul got knocked off his horse, okay? I know, oh, that's so sad. Where's my boo button? I know all of you got taught in Sunday school that Paul was on his high horse and God wants to knock you off your high horse. Now, it's possible that Paul was on a horse traveling because oftentimes they travel on horses, but the Bible doesn't say that Paul was knocked off of his horse. So I know there's a lot of you sad in the chat. You're just like, wait, what? I thought Paul was on a horse. It doesn't say that. But I want you to notice the voice of God says, why are you persecuting me? Now, I want to show you a parallel here, what Jesus says in Matthew 25, 31. Someone said, I thought it was a donkey. I, I did my whole life too. And I started studying this. I was like, oh wait, there's no horse or donkey here. But I want you to see what Jesus says in Matthew 25, 31, possibly one of the most revealing portions of the gospels in 20, uh, chapter 25 of Matthew, verse 31. But when the son of man comes, now pay attention, everybody, you don't listen to anything, hear this, because this is very important right now. But when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit upon his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a sh shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. So we're seeing a judgment here. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? Or when were we, did we ever see you thirsty and give you drink? Or a stranger and show you hospitality? Or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? So they're confused like, what are you talking about? We never fed you. We never gave you clothing. 
Verse 40, watch what the king says. Uh, what verse is this? This is Matthew 25. I'm in verse 40 right now. Then the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these of my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on the left. Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and you didn't visit me. So you talked all this stuff. You said you were righteous, but you didn't actually do what I said to do. Then they will reply, Lord. So these are believers that say Lord. They call him Lord. They believe he's Lord. Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you are refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. So not only does this show what we see with Saul is when we persecute other believers, it's as if we did it to Jesus himself, but also when we help others, it's as if we're doing it to Jesus. Understand this, friend. Jesus is showing us that when you visit those in prison, when you help those that are poor, when you feed those and clothe those and help the widow and the orphan, it's as if you're actually doing it to Jesus. If you saw Jesus on the corner, hungry, needing food, knowing that you had full capability to give him food, every single one of you, there's 2,400, 100% of you would give Jesus food. Yet how often do we drive by those that are homeless, those that are broken, those that are hurting, and we don't feed them? How often do we not step out and visit that person in the hospital, visit that person in prison, minister to that person? So we say, oh, I'll do it for you, Jesus. I would do it for you. We'd all do it for you. But he says, but you didn't do it for me. And they say, wait, what? Jesus, we never saw you hungry on the corner. We never saw you sick in the hospital. We never saw you freezing cold or thirsty. We would have jumped at the opportunity. Jesus goes, yes, but understand whatever you're doing, the least of these, then you're also doing to me. This is about walking out the gospel that we preach. So it shows us when you persecute Christians, this is why guys, I do not ever make videos slandering people. I don't ever make videos. Oh, my little thing broke here. Well, I guess it's not going to work. Let's see. I don't know what's going on there. We're going to refresh it. I don't ever make videos slandering people and saying, this person's false. This person's false. This person's of the devil. This person's of that. Because I don't ever want to speak against what God is doing. I'm not one to judge or one to say that this is God or this isn't God. And I never want to put myself in a position where if the Holy Spirit's doing something or God is doing something, then by persecuting the minister, even if I don't know if it's right or not, I'm also persecuting God. So I'm very careful when I say that's not of God or that person's false or that person. There's actually, I don't think one video, well, there's not one video on my entire channel where I call anybody false or say anyone's a false prophet. In fact, tomorrow we're going to refute Alan Parr's video and we're not going to call him false. We're not going to say he's a heretic. We're not going to slander him or, or, per, or do any of this stuff to him. We're going to refute the claims that he made with scripture. And we're going to be humble and we're going to be tactful and we're going to be respectful about it. Why? Because I don't ever want to put myself in a position where I'm persecuting a move of God just because I don't think it's a move of God. But it's really God doing a new thing, thinking that I'm in the right. And really, one day God comes to me and says, Isaiah, why are you persecuting me? And me saying, I'm not persecuting you, Lord. And Lord say, yes, you persecuted this person. I mean, this person was a representative. Now, you might say, I would never do that. Well, Paul was, Saul was doing this with zeal for God. Uh, Acts 9.5. And he said, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, here we have this blazing light. Saul sees something that's going to change him forever. Not a dream, not a vision. He sees Jesus in person. 
the crucified risen again Christ shows up to Saul and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul didn't recognize him, but he had sense enough to realize when he got knocked onto the ground that this is the Lord, that this is the boss, this is the man. And he said, who are you, Lord? And then that's what the Lord responds. Acts 9, 5. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Very clear who he's encountering, who he's meeting. Acts chapter 9, verses 6 through 9. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Talk about being led by the Spirit. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Do not expect everyone around you to see the same thing God is showing you. Then Saul arose from the ground. Okay, back to the the scripture. And when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and he neither ate nor drank. So three days, Paul is legally blind. Okay, he has no sight. He can't see. God has removed his eyesight. And now he's going to be blind for three days. No food, no drink. Now, no food and no drink for three days was reserved for urgent seeking God and repentance. When they wanted to seek God, when they wanted to repent, they would fast with no food, no water for three days as a sign of repentance and an urgent seeking of God. Now, I similar something happened to me when I got saved. When I got saved, I didn't sleep for three days. I didn't eat for almost two weeks. I had this radical encounter. I just posted my testimony, a short clip of it on Sunday night. If you want to go watch it, I had this radical encounter with God. And for three days, I didn't sleep a minute, friend. My life was turned upside down when I encountered the God of the universe. I was so shocked. People say, why didn't you sleep? I was so shocked about the fact that the God that I denied his existence for so long had a divine plan for my life. I was unable. In fact, I lost almost 30 pounds when I got saved. You know, before I got saved, I know you don't believe me. Everyone's going to think I'm lying in the chat. I used to go to the gym every day. Okay. I was taking weight gainer. I was eating. I was in the gym. I was gaining weight. I was all this. Then I got saved and I stopped eating for several weeks. I told my parents, I'm never gonna eat again. Food has no taste. All I want is God. I actually thought when I got saved, I was never gonna eat again. I was like, I'm just gonna live off God. And my mom's like, if you don't eat, you're gonna die. And then after almost two weeks, I I ate again, okay? So I was like, I'm never eating, I'm never doing this. I was so radical for God. And I lost about close to 30 pounds and I have not gained it back since, okay? But the point of it is, this is radical urgency. This is when you get to a place where you say, God, I want you more than the very breath in my lungs. I remember being in that place when I first got saved saying, God, I, you can take the breath out of my lungs as long as I have your presence. I wish somebody would remember what that was like. Lord, all I want is your presence. You can take everything. You can take the girlfriend. You can take the car. You can take the job. You can take the career, which he did take all of that. All I want is you, and I'm going I'm going after you, God. And I'll tell you right now, some people said, oh, that fire is going to die. Oh, brother, that's not going to last. February 2022, I am more excited, more on fire, more passionate about God 11 years later than I have ever been in my life. And God is saying tonight, it's time to get back to that passion. It's time to get back to that desperation. It's time to get back to that place where you say, I don't even care about food. I mean, the, the things of this world, it's like I'll eat to survive and I'll, I'll eat to live, but I don't live to eat. God is my sustenance. Jesus told the disciples, y'all are making me sweat here. Jesus said, I have food that you know nothing about. My food like literally is doing the will of my father. So it nourishes me doing what God has called me to do, whether that's preaching on live stream, preaching in a building, casting out demons, healing the sick, discipling people, baptizing people in water, the Holy Spirit, whatever God's telling me to do and I'm doing, it nourishes me. 
it keeps me going guys these streams take me hours and hours and hours to prepare and you know there's there's uh, stress involved in this and that but friend as i'm preaching and after i'm done i'm nourished i'm fulfilled because i'm doing the will of my father and if you're spiritually starving if you don't feel like nothing you do satisfies Try doing the will of the Father because that's food for the soul. And I'm telling you, this was what shocked me. Acts 9, 10 through 16. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. In a vision. I want you to remember this. So the Lord said to him, verse 11, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he was he seen a man named Ananias coming and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man and how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call in your name. But the Lord said, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So while Saul is blind, and I'm storytelling tonight because most of tonight is stories, while Saul is blind, struggling to figure out what's happening, God is, right as he's struggling, God is speaking to Ananias and say, there's a man named Saul, I want you to go. And the point is this, your disobedience could affect other people's destinies. You have to realize that your yes is a domino effect. Think about if I said no to God that night. If I said, no, I'm going to go back with my girlfriend. I'm going to go, which I could have easily done. Go back to the world. Go back to my career. Go back to this. Go back to that. Think about the millions of people that God has used me to impact that would have not have been impacted because of my decision. So on the other side of the door of obedience is somebody's destiny in the balance. Are you guys hearing this? Somebody's life is hinging on the fact that you've been called to say yes to God. So what could your life do? What impact could your yes be? I didn't know. I'm in, I'm in Modesto, California, I'm 19-year-old atheist and saying yes to God, not realizing that my yes would impact millions of lives. I had no clue. But Ananias has to understand and does understand that your obedience matters and your disobedience could affect Saul, who's going to write two-thirds of the New Testament's destiny. And Ananias was willing, even though he knows Saul's dangerous, because he's more worried about being obedient to God than his safety your obedience and desire to obey God has to be your highest priority. My obedience to God is a higher priority than my reputation. It's a higher priority than being a part of the crew and the club and, and everybody on YouTube or Facebook or whatever. My obedience to God, my desire to obey God is more important than my safety. If God says, go minister to that person, and in my mind, I'm like, well, they're going to kill me if I do. My obedience goes above my safety. It's above my finances. If God says do something and financially, I'm like, Lord, I can't. My obedience to God goes above that. I've given $100 before when I had $103 in the bank and said, God, I can't do it. And I gave the guy $100 in an in and out. And the guy said, you're not going to believe this. But I was literally just praying that God, if you're real and you're really looking out for my family, have someone walk up to me and give me $100. And 30 seconds later, you walked up to me and said, God told you to give me $100. That guy's prayer was being answered when God spoke to me and said, go do this. And I walked to the ATM across the street from in and out with $104 or $103 in my bank account and gave the guy a hundred. I didn't have the money to do it. I was making like $7 and 15 cents an hour at Starbucks, like a hundred dollars after taxes. Do you know how much work that was? But God said, do it. And I did it. And that guy's family's in the car, has no money, couldn't even buy food. And that hundred dollars was me being obedient to God and his destiny his God, if you're real, if you're not real, I'm not going to believe in you if you don't do this, is hinged on that. So I wonder how many times God is speaking to us and we're missing 
out on somebody getting breakthrough or blessed because we're disobedient. Acts 9, 17 through 19. And, I, and, I, and Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hand on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you might receive sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell, for, fell from his eyes something like scales. And he received sight at once and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. And Saul spent days with the disciples at Damascus. So now there's these scale type. Now, if you've heard my testimony as well, again, I am not saying I'm the apostle Paul. Please hear me. I'm just saying I had a very similar experience with God when I got saved. If you've heard my testimony, literal dirt scales are falling out of my eyes. Not spiritual, not in the, like literal dirt was coming out of my eyes. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what was going on. And I didn't know that Saul had scales come out of his eyes. I didn't know a biblical, it was a biblical reality, but God had removed the dirty scales off my eyes. I've shared that testimony before, so I won't go into detail. But I want to say, Five major things that are involved in Saul's spiritual rebirth that I think should be a part of everyone's born-again experience. Number one, he had a personal encounter with Jesus, if you're taking notes. Jesus initiated it. Saul did nothing to deserve it. Just like my encounter, Jesus initiated it. I didn't deserve it. I wasn't qualified. I wasn't educated. And he has a personal encounter. That's Acts 9, verses 3 through 6. Number two, he surrenders his life to Jesus as the Lord. That's Acts 9, 5. This is essential. You have to surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. You can't sit back and just invite him. Lord, come in my heart. You have to surrender. Say, Lord, I'm giving you my life. You can be my Lord. Number three, other Christians played an important role in Saul's conversion. They forgave him for the harm he'd done and they accepted him, Acts 9, 17, as a brother. Number four, Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, it's important. It might not be in America or the, according to the religious pastor you follow, but being filled with the Holy Spirit was important in the book of Acts, and it's important today. Number five, Saul's conversion was a personal conversion, but not a private conversion. Okay, this whole, everybody close your eyes, raise your hand, and repeat the sinner's prayer, and don't let anybody know this be a secret Christian is not gospel. It's not in the Bible. He was baptized, and that's a public confession of his faith in Jesus. That's Acts 9, 18. He was also commissioned to be a witness for Christ and an ambassador for Christ, and he became part of Acts 9.19, the Believer's Fellowship. Now, I want to read you a quote from Billy Graham on conversion. Listen to what Billy Graham says about conversion. Conversion occurs when we repent and place our faith in Christ. But what is the process like as we approach the point of conversion? And then Billy Graham says the key word is variety. The night I came to Christ, Billy Graham says, there were several people around me weeping. I had no tears at all. And I wondered if my active commitment was even genuine. Conversion is no less real to quiet people than to more expressive or dramatic ones. Jesus described the conversion experience like the movement of the wind in John 3, 8. Wind can be quiet and gentle, or it can reach cyclone proportions. So it is with conversion. Sometimes conversion's easy and tender. Other times it's a tornado which alters the entire landscape. And I couldn't agree more. Do not judge your conversion because you didn't have an Isaiah Saldivar experience. Do not judge your conversion because scales didn't come out of your eyes you didn't hear the audible voice of god or something crazy didn't happen because we all vary in our conversion experience for matthew it's going to the tax collector booth pick up your cross and follow me for saul it's knocking him on the ground and speaking to him saul why are you persecuting me not everybody's going to have this radical dramatic conversion and that's okay but don't compare your conversion to other people's conversions 
Number five was Saul's conversion was personal, but not private. Okay, that was number five. So conversions can vary. Now I want to go over biblical terms for conversion. We're going to do a little bit of teaching here. I want to go through all the biblical terms of conversion. Number one is conversion. That's the term. And that's to turn to Christ, to change beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors. That's Acts 15.3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles. And they caused great joy to all the brethren. So that's conversion. It's a change of beliefs. It's a change of attitudes. When you get saved, you are converted. Things are changed. You're, you go from death to life. And again, you can watch these on the replay. Don't stressed out. Don't get stressed if you don't write them all. Next one is renewal. These are all words for conversion. Renewal. This is to restore spiritual life and relationship with God. Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So that's the renewal. It's the restoration of spiritual life. It's building relationship with God. It's renewing of the Holy Spirit. Born again is becoming a child of God. When you receive Christ, you become a part of the God's family. That's John chapter one, verses 12 through 13. But as many as received him, he gave them right. Not everyone's a child of God, but watch what it says here. He gave them right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. So John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said, most surely I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. First John 3, 9, whoever has been born of God, notice again, born of God does not sin for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. This idea of being born of the spirit or being born again or being born of God is a spiritual reality. It's not natural. It's not you pray the same prayer. It's you receiving Christ. You are born again. You become a child of God. He gave right to become children of God, not born by human decision, husband's will or natural descent, but born of the Holy Spirit, born of the spirit of God. You go from death to life. Your eyes are now open. You're now a spiritual being. You're born into the spiritual realm and you are now a citizen of heaven. You're now an ambassador for God. You're born again. Oh, how do I know if I was born again? If you were born again, you know if you were born again. I could say January 12, 2011, I was born again. I went from death to life. My life radically changed. I had a born again experience. That's being born again. Now, there's a lot of people that, oh, I went to church in this, but they're never, they've never been born again. And so you need to ask the Lord, Lord, I want to be born again. I want to receive you. I want your power. I want your anointing. I want you to change my life. I need you to transform every part of me. That's the born again experience. Resurrection. That's to become alive to God, ending the separation caused by sin. When you see spiritual death, you're talking about separation from God, okay? Adam and Eve, they went through spiritual death. They were separated from God. That communion they once had was gone. There's that chasm now. And so resurrection is when you become alive to God. We're not talking about physical yet. We're talking about spiritual. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. And he and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. So you were spiritually dead in which you once watched according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature of wrath just as the others. But God, here's the contrast, but God who is in rich, rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together in Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the age to, ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So God has raised us up. That's spiritually dead. Now we're spiritually alive. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him 
and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Another term is new creation. This is becoming a new person. You become one of God's new people. You're all, you're made brand new when you come to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death by any means. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I have the wrong verse there. If any man be in Christ, he becomes a new creature. The old things are dead. Behold, all things are made new. That's a new person. That's a new creature. Okay, receiving Christ. That's actively inviting or welcoming this is not in the sinner's prayer, welcoming Christ into one's life. Romans chapter 5, verses 10 through 11. Remember, this is written to Christians in Rome, not unbelievers. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall have been saved by his life. And not only that, we rejoice in the Lord our Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received the, received the reconciliation. So we're receiving and we are being reconciled with Christ. We're receiving Christ. We're being reconnected to Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the, the word of reconciliation. Okay, Romans 10, 9. Now, this is another principle, saved. And that's rescued from the consequences of sin. That's another word um, when it comes to conversion, saved. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, you will be saved. And I want you to notice this is a future tense thing. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes into righteousness and that the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So it's not just, this is why I don't believe once saved, always saved. Salvation is not... I got saved, okay? I can do whatever I want. I can live however I want because I got saved. I got salvation. He says, you will be saved and it's unto salvation. So it's saying, listen, we're being saved. We're in this work of being saved. God is saving us. And when we receive Christ, we're reconciled back to him. We confess with our mouth. We believe in our heart that he was raised from the dead. He goes, you're going to be saved. Now, this contextually was... They were making them confess that Caesar was Lord in Rome. The money said Caesar is Lord, and Paul's writing the church in Rome who's being persecuted for their faith, and Paul is basically saying, do not confess Caesar is Lord. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and when they kill you, you will be saved. You're not going to go to hell. You're going to be saved because you're confessing that Jesus is your Lord. And so this was, again, written to believers, not written to those that were unbelievers. Okay, last term I want to go over is decision. And this is a willing choice you make to follow Christ. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So this is a decision you have to make to follow Jesus, okay? Acts chapter 9, verses 20 through 24. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. So Paul gets radically converted, radically saved, and is now preaching Christ in the synagogues and preaching that Christ is the son of God. And verse 21, then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not the one who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and those and, and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill Saul, but their plot came known to Saul. They watched the gates day and night to kill him. So here Paul comes, or Saul comes, supposed to be arresting Christians, and he's in the synagogue. They're all excited because here he is. He's persecuting the church, persecuting Christians. But here's what they didn't realize. Saul had an encounter on his way to persecute the Christians. 
And now Saul gets up and says the exact opposite of what the religious people thought he was going to say. And they go, wait a minute. Isn't this the guy who's supposed to be destroying the Christians that call on this name? But now he's preaching in this name. And that's what God will do. He will change everything. He will turn your life around. One encounter can change the entire direction. I hope I have a witness type one in the chat. One encounter can change the entire direction of your life. You go from cursing at God like I was to speaking on God's behalf. Now, Paul, the Bible says, confounded the Jews and proved that Jesus is the Christ. The fulfillment of Ananias' prophecy that Paul would suffer for Christ's name's sake had already started because now Paul is going to be going, I'm sorry, now Saul is going to be going from hunting Christians to being hunted by his very own friends that he was doing all his religious work with. Acts 9.25, then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. Think about this, guys. Paul is now being saved by those who are trying to kill him. How God turns this around, God will make even your enemies your brothers and sisters. From the start of Paul's conversion all throughout his life, he's going to learn the importance of having other believers around him. Friend, you need to have other believers around you. All the way from Paul's conversion, being led by other believers, to Ananias coming and praying for him, to his escape. He's understanding that we need other people. That's the principle, is interdependence. We need each other. You need me and I need you. Because what happens when you have direct revelation from God and you don't have any interdependence, you're independent, that creates spiritual pride, individualism, separation from others of the community of the faith. All these ministers that are like, I'm the man of God, no one can come around me, no one can touch me. That's not of God, that's not God's desire, that's not God's will. God wants us to be linked up in community, a part of community, whether you're in community here, whether you're in community at your church, whether you're in community in your family, you need to be a part of some sort of community because even Saul is gonna learn that we need community. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no one to lift him up. Again, if two are lying together, they can keep warm. But how could one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not easily broken. The devil wants to isolate you. He wants you alone. We need to stick together. Acts 9, man, I'm going long here. Acts 9, 26 through 27. We got to go faster on these guys. We're never going to get through the book of Acts if I take so long in every single chapter. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. This is Acts 9, 26 through 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to him that he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him. And now he preached boldly in Damascus in the name of Jesus. So the last disciples knew about him was in Acts 1. Remember in the beginning of this, preaching the opening words of the chapter are he's breathing threats and murder against the disciples now paul wants to fellowship with them and they're going like he's going to come undercover and kill us and barnabas is saying guys listen he's boldly preaching we got to stop being so skeptical and this is something i want to say to everybody because especially on youtube culture facebook culture we need to be less skeptical guys we have so many people who think this person's false this preacher's false this preacher's false and we just think everybody's false we write people off and it's not godly barnabas when everybody was skeptical about saul barnabas said i'm gonna bring him in i'm gonna help him out i've seen him boldly preach christ and i'll tell you right now there's far less false preachers than you think if someone is boldly preaching jesus why are we so quick to count them out if somebody is boldly declaring the gospel why do we always want a heresy hunt and think everybody is false i'm telling you right now we need to be careful by thinking people are false being afraid that that person's false that person's false Here's what happens in the body of Christ, why we have this mentality that everybody's false. 
It's because we don't understand different body parts. So we might look at one part of the body and say, oh, I don't like that part because it's not like me. But remember, the hand doesn't say to the foot. The eye doesn't say to the foot. The foot doesn't say to the eye. The body parts in the Bible, they don't tell each other, you're not important because you're not like me. Some are there to see. Some are there to speak. Some are there as a foot, a toe. The body has so many different body parts and the body of Christ is varied. So I don't look at one guy that has a different part of the body and say, well, that guy's not right. He's a heresy or he's false. He's a heretic because he's not a part of the body that I'm a part of. I just root him on and say, even if he's doing it with wrong intentions, Paul said, at least he's preaching. Now, of course, if they're denying the divinity of Christ, if they're divine, the resurrection of Christ, if they're denying that Jesus is the son of God and Jesus is God, these are all things that I don't debate with. Okay. You are false. If you do not believe Jesus rose from the dead, if you don't believe Jesus is the only way to salvation, these are all things you can't debate. But for the most part, I'm so sick of all of these people thinking everybody's false, everybody's wrong, and you live under the shell thinking everyone's wrong but you. Everybody has a part of their doctrine or their theology that's not 100% in alignment, and we need to humble ourselves and be open to correction, to be open to people saying, you might not be right about this, you should reevaluate this or that, and then go back and look the area of scripture and say, okay, I'm going to be humble and I'm going to admit I was wrong in this area or maybe I didn't have that right. And I'm always learning. I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly saying, if I'm wrong, show me, teach me. I have pastors, I have leaders in my life that are willing to say, hey, what about this? What about this? Challenge my theology, challenge my thinking. And I'm constantly going back and saying, I used to believe this, but I don't believe this anymore. And that's all part of growing. So we need to stop being so skeptical about everybody in the church. Acts 9 Verses 28 through 30. So he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and out and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and they sent him out to Tarsus. In Jerusalem, Saul basically took up off where Stephen left off, ministering among the Grecian Jews as if the former persecutor, who's Paul, felt that he needed to continue this martyr's work. So I want you to think about this. Saul is holding the clothes of those killing Stephen. Now Saul is saved and he's back at the same place Stephen was preaching and he's preaching the Hellenists almost as if he felt guilty, like I need to continue the work that Stephen the martyr did. And this is only God that can turn this around. Once again, Saul's brothers saved his life and brought him out of town sending him to Tarsus, which is his hometown. Acts 9, 31 through 32. Then the churches throughout all of Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified, okay? It's like Saul's gone. He's not killing everybody. Now there's peace and they're edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Now it came to pass as Peter went through all the parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. So now that Saul's on the side of the Christians, he's okay. He's now a believer. He's now preaching. There's a window of peace and Peter's able to travel and freely visit different Christian communities outside of Jerusalem. Acts 9, 33-35. There he found a certain man named um, Aeneas. I don't know. There's a lot of ways to say it, but Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So here's the first miracle on Peter's journey that took place between the junction of two trade routes the Egypt to Babylonian road and the Joppa to Jerusalem highway at the town of Lydda. And a man named Aeneas had been disabled for eight years. And Peter said, Jesus Christ heals you. And the man got up and his paralysis vanished. And he went around showing people what happened. And the Bible says the people of that city turned to the Lord. So here's why miracles are so vital in the church today, because they point people to God, because people are that are not seeing miracles in our churches. What is pointing them to God? 
are clever speeches. Paul said, I didn't come with clever speeches. I came with demonstration and power. So these miracles, even in deliverance, you're going to see in the gospels, demons were cast out. And the Bible says that there was fear and awe and the people would turn to God and the people would believe the message. So understand that miracles are essential because they point people to God. Miracles do not point to our ministries. Deliverance does not point to Isaiah Saldivar. Isaiah can't deliver anybody. Miracles can't point to this. Miracles can't point to our, it points to Christ. It points to the Father. And that's why the Bible says, let your light shine before men so they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So we do need miracles in the church because there's not enough things pointing to God. It's not just enough because the thing is, if we point to God and preach, that's great and we should do that. But not everyone's going to believe our preaching. And that's why in John 10, go read it. Jesus said, if you don't believe my preaching. Now, if they didn't believe Jesus, the son of God, okay, God incarnate, if they didn't believe his preaching, don't you think that they're not going to believe our preaching at times? So what do we do when they don't believe our preaching? Jesus said, if you don't believe my preaching, believe the signs and wonders, believe the miracle. So miracles do again, validate the gospel. Acts 9, 36 through 38, at Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did, but it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room, and since Lydda was near, Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring for him to delay in the coming to them. So 11 miles from Lydda in the Mediterranean coastal city called Joppa, now is part of Tel Aviv, lived a Christian woman named Tabitha, and was noted because she was loving, she was caring, and she was using her sewing skills to help the poor. She ends up dying. Her body's being prepared for burial, which according to Jewish, Jewish custom, she would have to take, this would have to take place before sundown, the day of her death. So we don't have much time before her burial and preparing her burial. And now they're saying, Peter, you need to come. They're asking Peter to come because they know Peter walks in the power of God. And sadly, these days, Christians are not known for walking in God's power. We should be the one that our friends and family go to when someone's sick in body, when someone's demonized, when someone's hurting, when someone's dead, we should go, we should say, I know someone who walks in the power of God. They heard Peter was in the next town over and Peter has the power to raise her from the dead from this is what I want in my life. I want to be the first person that they call when somebody dies. I want them to say, wait a minute, there's Isaiah in the next town over. He could raise the dead. He has the power of God. Now, all of these religious people, these religious pastors and preachers that don't cast their demons, don't heal the sick, don't raise the dead, do you think they're going to get called? And this is why a lot of them don't do miracles or deliverance, because nobody calls them because everybody knows they don't walk in the power of God. But here we have a guy named Peter who's walking in it, not just preaching it, walking in the power of God. And so we're going to call Peter because Peter raises the dead, because Peter preaches with power, because Peter can demonstrate I'm telling you, friend, there has to come a day where people have more faith in God's people than in medicine. We've lost that supernatural element as a church. And I believe that tonight God is restoring the supernatural back to his church and that God wants us to be a supernatural people. God wants us to be a supernatural church and to raise the dead. Now you might say, well, Isaiah, have you raised the dead? I've tried. I've tried. And that's more to say than some people. I've prayed for one dead guy. Uh, a family, it was a Catholic family. They said, Hey, can you come pray? And a friend of me, uh, my friend and me and a couple others went, we got around that dead body. And I believed with everything in me, he was going to come back from the dead. We laid hands on him. And I'm telling you, I could have sworn that he was heating up. I thought I felt him move. I was like, he's getting raised in this. And then we were praying, praying, praying. We were commanding him to get up, arise and all this stuff about five or 10 minutes went by. The family came in and said, okay, you guys got to do your thing. 
and now we get we going to do our thing and so they ushered us out of the room we were outside looking through the window because it was actually my friend who it was his uncle and they brought in a catholic priest and they put coins over his eyes and they smoked him down i don't know what they were doing but they had a smoke machine and they were literally like they were hot box in the room with like ash and stuff they were smoking him down i don't know what it's for maybe they were preparing him for what they believe is purgatory some of you in the chat that are catholic can tell me why they were smoking him down but they were smoking him down and i literally was so grieved i'm like we were so close to raising him from the dead and you guys just smoked him back back to death with your ashes and your spray and the coins on his eyes and all the stuff that the Catholics were doing to him, the Catholic priest was doing to him. That was my only chance. Now there's a lot of laws around deceased bodies, which is why it's not common to hear stories of raising from the dead. But critics always say, oh, if you could raise the dead, raise the dead. Okay, bring me a dead person. I believe that we have the power to raise the dead. There's no crazy teaching that you need. There's no crazy doctrine about it. You can raise the dead. Watch this. Acts 9, 39 through 43. Then Peter rose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. So Peter gets everybody out of the room, kneels down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Verse 41. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Verse 42, and it came known throughout all of Joppa and many believed on the Lord. So here we see another pattern. It became known throughout all of Joppa and many believed on the Lord, not Peter, on the Lord. Verse 43, so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. So Peter had seen Jesus raise the dead. He took her upstairs, got everybody out, and almost word for word did exactly what Jesus did. Tabitha, arise. These were the words that Jesus used when he'd raise the dead. He would say, arise. And in that very moment, he presented her alive to the people. So friend, are you seeing the theme here? Miracles are happening and people are believing. That's the theme of tonight. That's the theme of this. Now we're going to pray for miracles and we're going to pray for people. And again, we got to get through these. I promise you the next teaching we do, we're going to get through more than one chapter and we're going to mix it up with other things because it's just taking us so long to get through this. A lot of this is storytelling, but I hope I'm making you excited for the Bible. I'm, I hope you're excited about reading the Bible, going through scripture and devouring the word of God. But the theme is this, miracles happen and people believe. This is Acts chapter eight, casting out demons and healing the sick. The city believed, the city saw revival. Acts chapter nine, the paralyzed healed and the dead raised. So again, you're telling me this is not for today. You're telling me that we don't have the same spirit that raised Christ. A lot of preachers preach that that's for them and not for now. But my question back to them would be, so there's not any more sick people. So there's not any more demonized people. So there's not any more dead people that need this. I would never. Now listen to me, chat, please. Because I say this with all conviction. I would never in a thousand years sit under a preacher, a pastor, or a teacher that says miracles are not for today, that says deliverance is not for today, that says the gifts of the Holy Spirit are not for today, that says raising the dead is not for today. Let me look at the words of Jesus, Matthew 10, seven through eight, and proclaim as you go saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers and cast out demons. This is not an option, this is not the great opinion or the great option this is the great commission and commandment here's what you're going to do as you go tell them the kingdom of heaven is at hand heal the sick okay he didn't even say pray he just said heal the sick i'm telling you with jesus in matthew 10 7 raise the dead cleanse the lepers and cast out devils now 
Was it just for the disciples? No, because if we go to the book of Acts, what were they doing? They were healing the sick. They were raising the dead. We just saw that. They were cleansing lepers and they were casting out demons. This is what they were called to do. And this is what we are called to do. Jesus commands the disciples to go do this. He says, you need to go do this. Now it's false doctrine to say, we only only let them do it, but we don't need to do this. This is for today. It is for now. And if it wasn't, the Bible would not say you have the same spirit that raised Christ. You would, it would say you have a, a, a different spirit, a lesser spirit. You know, the disciples had special authority. Friend, let me just say this. Okay. And it's my broadcast. I could say whatever I want. The doctrine that says that the power of God, the disciples power and all that is different than what you have. You have a lesser power. You have a lesser Holy Spirit. You have a lesser fire. You have a lesser anointing than the disciples had. They had something much greater than you have is not scriptural. There's no verse in the Bible that says that it died with the apostles. There's no verse that says that we don't need to cast out devils. We don't need to heal the sick. It's not for you. If Jesus commanded the disciples to do it, okay, it's very simple. I am now a disciple of Jesus. I'm a follower. That's what a disciple means. If the disciples were coming, well, it was just the apostles. No, it wasn't. The Bible says that in Luke 10, the 72 disciples, followers of Jesus went out. These were not all apostles casting out demons. The 72, if they went and did it, okay, you could take out Mark 16 because all the religious guys, well, Mark 16 wasn't in the original transcripts and that's a slippery slope. I would never preach that because then you have to start saying, well, what else are you going to take out? If you're going to take out Mark 16, what else are you going to remove from the Bible that wasn't supposed to be there? Did you just rip it out of your Bible? Because it's in our Bibles today. It's not taken out. It's in our New King James Version. It's in our NLT. It's in the ESV. So don't tell me, well, it's not really in the original text just because you don't want to do it. Don't start telling me it's not in the Bible. But with that all being said, the whole idea that I'm a disciple, but I can't do what the disciples did is not a scriptural idea. It's not in the Bible. There's no verse for it. There's no text for it. There's no, you don't need a Bible scholar. You don't need to go through Bible college for four years. All you need is common sense to think if the disciples did it, I'm a Christian, which is a little Christ. That's what a Christian is, which we're going to show you the next teaching we do because it talks about Christians. And if Jesus did it, if the disciples did it, now Jesus said, which we could even go and prove it in scripture, Jesus said, do the works I did and even greater that you will do the works I did. So then the question becomes, what works did Jesus do? What works did Jesus do? Well, he preached, he cast out devils. Is that a work? You tell me. He healed the sick. Now Jesus says, greater works you're going to do. Okay, the same works and greater. So I'm called to do that then. It's not just a description of what Jesus did. It's the calling to me as a believer. Now, if you don't want to do that and you don't believe that, you can live a powerless Christian life and you can live your entire life and never see a miracle and never cast out a devil and never and live a boring Christian life because really that's what it is. That's fine. Are you still going to be saved? Yeah. Bible says that you'll get there and your works will be thrown in the fire and you'll still barely escape the flames of judgment. But I'm not interested in this low level Christianity of how little can I do for God I want to do what God has called me to do. It's very, very simple. We don't need to overcomplicate it. I know a lot of guys want to teach in Greek. Why are we teaching in Greek when we don't even do it in English? Okay. Go and make disciples. Go cast out devils. This is the book of Acts. I know we're an hour and 15 minutes in. This is the book of Acts. And this is what God wants to do in your life tonight. 
God wants you to demonstrate it. God wants you to demonstrate it. Every single one of you. You are called, you are anointed, you are chosen not by Isaiah, not by preacher, not by Bible scholar, not by a Greek text, not by a Hebrew, Hebrew grammarian or any of these things. You are anointed by the Holy Spirit, by the power of God. He will disciple you to stop listening to false people that say you don't need to do this and you can't do this because you absolutely can and you absolutely need to. Everybody needs to be doing this. The world is broken, guys. We need more people out doing it, not less. We live in a broken world. We need to do this. Get on the front lines, not the sidelines. Stop trying to tell people from the stands how to run the ball. If you're in the stands not doing it, don't be telling people how to do it. This is your moment. This is your calling. God wants you to do it. So that's Acts chapter 9. I, I was actually tonight planning on going all the way through Acts chapter 11, but it's just too much. It's too long. We're already over an hour, and I want to pray with you. And I know there's people at 3 in the morning, and they're like, I want some prayer. So here's the thing. If you need the Holy Spirit tonight, you can get the Holy Spirit tonight. All you have to do is ask. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. If you like what you heard, go to www.isaiahsaldivar.com for more content. And please follow me on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Isaiah Saldivar. See you next week.